The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Um, tonight, we are going to be continuing in our... Uh, in our sermon series, The Way of Wisdom, uh, in this series, we're working through the book of Proverbs, looking at different topics that this book speaks to. If you don't know anything about the Proverbs, the Proverbs are unique in that they're not a uh, bundle of parables, it's not a book of prophecy, it's not um, a historical narrative, but uh, the majority of it is actually written by uh, King Solomon, the vast majority, towards his son. It's a list of, or a bundle of uh, kind of pithy sayings to give his son some wisdom on how he goes through life. Uh, when I think of the Proverbs, I think of my grandfather, who was full of all kinds of helpful wisdom, such as, you never count your chickens on a Tuesday when you know it's going to rain on a Wednesday. I don't know what that means, but it's good advice, uh, I'm sure. I'm, I'm still trying to figure that one out. Um, but really, it, it, the book of Proverbs is, is a lot of metaphors, there's a lot of similes, and it's all based, or the majority of it is based to help this young man enter into life with wisdom. And so tonight, we're going to be discussing wisdom in relationships. Uh, I'm sure for the vast majority of you, when I say relationships, the first thing that pops into your mind is your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife. Uh, Lord willing, you only have one of those. Um, but, but we're going to be talking about relationships in a much broader spectrum this evening. We're going to be talking about relationships um, between uh, parents and their children. We'll be talking about relationships between friends, between neighbors, um, siblings, uh, relationships in the broad sense of the word. And the Bible as a whole is not quiet to this matter. Um, we see the Bible call children to honor their father and their mother the Bible calls husbands to love their wife as Christ loved the church. The Bible calls parents not to push their ch children into wisdom, to love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible speaks ample amounts towards relationships. But uh, presumably, all of you are in some form of a relationship, right? You can probably attest that a healthy relationship, an intentional relationship, can sometimes be tiresome. It can sometimes take something out of us. It, is, it takes effort. It, it takes work. Um, fun little example. Uh, me and Emily like to have our friends over to our apartment, uh, enjoy good times, board games, all that cool jazz. Uh, but there's a kind of an underlying joke within my friend group that at some point, usually between the hours of 11 and 12, if people are still at our apartment, I'm going to sleep. Uh, it's not purposeful. Usually, usually I'll be sitting up and, you know, just kind of slouch down. Um, occasionally, I'll just give in to my flesh, grab a blanket and a pillow and lay down on the floor and just go to sleep. But, but it, it's, it's above, above what I can handle. I just get tired out. I'm an introvert. It's more than I can handle sometimes, and so I just fall asleep. Um, and that's kind of a silly illustration, but I think a lot of us in here can kind of relate to that, can kind of recognize, man, when, when I am trying to be a good friend, when I'm trying to be a good husband, when I'm trying to be a good parent, and when I'm trying to be all these things, I get wore out. And so tonight we're going to be in Proverbs 3, 27 through 35, and looking at what Solomon told his son, three pieces of wisdom about how to dwell within relationships. We're going to look at these three pieces of wisdom, and then 
through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of the gospel, we're going to look at a couple application points just so y'all can have a road map of where we're going tonight. But let's start, like I said, in Proverbs 27 and 28. They read, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again tomorrow. I will give it, I will give it when you have it with you. The first thing I think that will stand out to many of us in this room in, in that very first sentence is the language of do not withhold good from to whom it is due. Uh, this language, I, I know for me personally, the first thing I wanted to do with it was maybe start sifting some people out of it. Um, who really deserves me to do good unto them, right? Um, maybe it's, and in your life, I'm not saying mine, maybe in your life, maybe it's a boss who is just very unappreciative. Maybe it's someone that just gets on your nerves. Maybe it's a child who's been acting up and the last thing you want to do is something good to them, right? I think naturally when we read the, this verse, the first thing we want to do is start sifting and separating and putting people in categories of whether or not they actually deserve our good. But what Solomon is teaching his son in this moment is actually quite the opposite. It's hard to see in the English, but in the Hebrew, Solomon is putting the, the imagery of a debtor on his son. Uh, maybe it'll help us read or understand it if it's read like this. Do not withhold good from others as if it was due unto them. See, Solomon is calling his son to live this life of servanthood and humility as a debtor to anyone he's in relationship with. Thinking about this verse in context and uh, with where it's landing in the Bible, uh, if you don't know this, King Solomon was a king, right, uh, given by the name. Uh, that means his son was also a royalty. Uh, I know as Americans we don't deal with royalty very well, but royalty doesn't exactly uh, consider themselves debtors. It's the other way around. The, their subjects are indebted to them. The, the royalty watches over them. They guide them. They collect taxes. They do all these things, and, and royalty is indebted to nobody. So it's quite the cultural upside down for Solomon to call his son to live in the opposite manner, to the ones he comes in contact with to live as a debtor unto them. And the next line down is when it is in your power to do so, obviously, being a prince, being a future king, he would have a lot of opportunity to do so. He, he has affluence, he has money, he has resources, he has things to give away in excess. I think a lot of times in our lives, when we see the state of the world around us, when we see hurting across the world or across the country, when, when help is out of our ability, we can become downtrodden. We can be discouraged. We can look at ourselves and say, I have no possibility to help in this situation. The great thing about this proverb is it's not calling you to go and, and fix the situation across the world. It's calling you to serve where you are. Not that it's bad to send money to missions across the seas or help out where you can overseas, but this proverb in uh, particular is talking about within your relationships, within your bubble, you do what you can when you can. Solomon follows this language with a little uh, illustration of his own. If a neighbor comes and, and asks for something, you give it to him if it's there with you today. This would be similar to if today, if your neighbor comes over and asks you for a cup of sugar, Solomon says you should run to the kitchen, get them a cup of sugar as if the day before they had cooked you this five-course elaborate meal, as if they cut the grass for you, as if they picked up the kids from daycare. We would quickly run. Yeah, I can get you a cup of sugar, man. And that's the mentality Solomon is calling his son to. Um, when I was in college, 
I took a job as a security guard, which um, by my small stature and the fact that I sound like Mickey Mouse when I get nervous is a terrible job for me. Um, but I spent a summer doing it. It was a wild time. Um, and one night, I got a graveyard shift of uh, being a security guard at a Caterpillar dealership, right? They had a big presentation the next day, so there's computers and tents and all kinds of bougie stuff outside, and they don't want it stolen. Makes sense. And so I go, and my job is to sit there from 6 o'clock in the evening till 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, and compare, uh, you know, the movie Paul Blart Mall Cop gave a terrible illustration of what security guards actually do. It was not that elaborate. Never gotten a foot chase, unfortunately. So most of my night was spent reading until the sun went down. And then once the sun went down, uh, I'd pull my phone out and I watched YouTube videos. Uh, Emily at the time was living in Alaska, so, you know, four hours difference. So it was beneficial that I was up at two in the morning periodically through the night because an iPhone, you know, lasts about two hours on a full charge. I would plug it into my truck, uh, not turning my truck on because, you know, don't want to waste gas. I ain't got all kinds of money. Uh, but, you know, I unplug it, do my rounds, come back, plug it back up. Four o'clock arrives, and <clears throat> my relief pulls up. And I'm like, how you doing, Joe? I'm heading out of here. And I go to crank my truck up, and I kid you not, this thing didn't even tick. Like, it just turned and like nothing. And I was like, oh, dear Lord. And so uh, I, I popped my hood, and Joe popped his hood, and we hooked up jumper cables, and he drove like a little Civic. And so, you know, he's, and like, it does nothing to my big F-150. Like, it just makes it angry, if anything else. And so I start calling people, and it's summertime, so most of my friends who I go to college with, they're not in town. Uh, my parents are out of town. Emily's in Alaska. And like, I got a list of a handful of people, and no one's picking up because it's like, 4.15, 4.30 in the morning, right? Like, that's an odd time to be receiving a phone call. Uh, I got to the bottom of the list, and the last name on the list was actually my boss's boss at North Greenville. At, at North Greenville, I was a part of an organization, and so one of the higher-ups, I had his number, and I knew that he left his phone on noise all night, and I was like, man, this is really not who I want to call in this situation. Uh, we had a little bit of a relationship. We went to church together, but still uncomfortable. I'm like, I'm tired of sitting here. I give him a call. I give him a call, and I kid you not, maybe three rings, more like two. He picks up, well, hey, John Ross, how you doing this morning? And I was like, uh, I'm doing good, man. You been up for a while? Uh, no, but I'm probably going to get up here in about an hour and a half, two hours. What can I do for you? I'm like, oh, the shame. And <laughs> I was like, well, to be honest with you, man, I'm, I'm about 40 minutes from North Greenville on the outskirts of Greenville. My truck's dead. Can you can you come try to jump it off, or can you come at least pick me up so I can go pick up a battery from somewhere? He's like, I'll be there in 40 minutes. He was there in a flat 39. It was a miracle. It was like he flew. But he gets there, and he hooks up the jumper cables, cranks right up. I was like, oh, I thank the Lord. And I'm like, dude, I am so thankful for you. Thank you for coming and helping me out. And he looks at me, and with a straight face, this crazy man is like, why are you thanking me? I am so glad you thought of me to call me and have me come out here and help you. I'm, I'm just glad I had my phone turned on. I'm glad I could get up and come help you out. And I'm like, you're crazy. You're a fool. Uh, I asked you to leave your warm bed and drive 40 minutes to jump my truck off. I, what are you thinking? But it is that same mentality that Solomon is calling his son to. He's calling his son when it is possible, when it is within your power, when in, you can do it, and someone needs you, you serve them. You do it for them. <clears throat> so the first point, the first piece of wisdom that Solomon is giving his son is to seek to do good. We're well, continuing on in verses 29 and 30. 
Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. So we see Solomon first call his son, hey, don't withhold good. Now he's calling him in, in verse 29, hey, make sure to not plan evil against your neighbor. neighbor. Uh, it's important to note here that this word plan is closely tied to the word plow, right? And so in, in a unique way, Solomon is kind of implying to his son, hey, don't go into your neighbor's life. Oh, and if you don't know what plowing in, just in case you ain't from Gur, uh, it, it's when you go and you dig a little trench and, and you make an indention in the ground so you can plant a seed, and then later the farmer comes back and reaps what that seed has grown into, right? You've been educated. So now uh, Solomon is inferring to his son, don't be going into people's lives to tear up their lives, to plant these seeds of evil. Some translations may say harm or violence. Don't be planting these seeds in their life so that you can come back later and reap something from it. Now, I don't know about many of you, but I do not consider myself a violent person. I don't consider myself a very harmful person. Uh, like I said, small stature, right? Uh, I never sit outside my neighbor's door and like, man, when this joker walks out, we throw him fisticuffs. I'm going to hurt him. That's, that's not who I am, and I'm sure most of, that's not most of you. If, if it is, this definitely applies to you, so don't stop listening right now. But, but that's not really who most of us are, right? So it's easy for us to kind of skirt past this verse, but I think it's important to note that this evil, this harm, this violence that Solomon is talking about here is not solely restricted to physical violence or harm. This evil co covers a whole span of different atrocities. And I think more than likely in today's world, in, in our generation, and in, in where we live in the world, this more commonly than not looks like some form of verbal aggression or violence or, or attack. <clears throat> this proverb would speak against us using our words to hurt somebody so that we may advance, whether it's through gossip, slander, evil speech. This proverb would teach us that it's wrong for us in our place of work to go and, and slander somebody to maybe get in better tidings with the boss or to get that raise or to just be the golden child at our place of work. This proverb would speak against us gossiping about our, church, our fellow church members, our friends, our family. Oftentimes done in the mentality of, oh, I just want to make sure I'm not in the wrong here. Right, still gossip. It would advise against that so that we can gain some form of pity party and feel better about ourselves and, and maybe make someone else look worse. It would speak against us using someone else as, as a butt of our joke, hitting on something some, we know someone is, is, uh, is self-conscious about. We know something that's just going to jab them that, yes, it'll get a laugh and people will look at us and say, oh, he's so funny or she's so funny. What a great sense of humor. But we abuse this person in the process, <clears throat> this evil does not necessarily look like pulling out swords and spears with the intention to hurt one another. Once again, if you do that, this definitely applies to you. But this evil encompasses any form of evil or harm that we plan in our neighbor's life. Solomon continues in verse 30, he, he calls his son to not be contentious. Don't contend with another man for no reason. Don't be quarrelsome. And what a fitting call to our generation today, both in person and on social media. How often do we enter into an argument with this 
a false badge of self-righteousness or this desire to set the record straight or to educate somebody. But in, actual, in actuality, a heart, our heart is in a place of self-righteousness, arrogance, done with a theological, political, judicial, or demographic chip on our shoulder. Oftentimes to those who didn't do us any harm, but more or less probably just got on our nerves. And when we've achieved victory on the battlefield of Facebook or in the battlefield of a coffee shop argument, what have we achieved in those moments? Oftentimes we have only hardened the person to our position, made them feel belittled, unheard, unappreciated. <clears throat> Many of you in here enjoy camping. Can I get a show of hands? Thank you. I needed a sip of water, and so I had to improvise there. <clears throat> I also enjoy camping. I've camped with a lot of you in here. Uh, I like a good middle ground. I, not that I don't enjoy going out with a two-inch pocket knife and a thing of dental floss or going out in a camper. I enjoy both of those, but I like the middle ground. I like backpacking. And the trick to backpacking, because you have a limited space of putting stuff into, uh, you have to be kind of particular about it. Um, and I am very particular about this. Uh, I have a special place for my tent. I have a special place for my coffee. I have a special place for my water for quick access. I have dry socks available. I'm very weird about it. And, but, but that's what you do. And, and in doing so, you can maneuver better, you can walk better, you can hike better. But it never fails. When you get to the trailhead, someone's going to ask you the question. And that question is, can I put something in your pack? And there's nothing more frustrating because it is never anything small. It is never a pack of socks. It is never a t-shirt. It's like three gallon jugs of water. And it's like, really, you want to put that in my bag? Or it's one of those big Coleman grills with a bunch of propane, more propane than you know the US Army would use in a month. Like, why do we need this? Or it's a boulder. Hey, this is my camping boulder, man. I can't camp without my boulder. It's always something like that. And it, it never fails, you know, I put it in my bag and it just throws me off. And I stumble around and I trip and I fall and I look foolish out there over this burden that someone else has put on me. In the same way, Solomon is telling his son that the way we treat one another, the way we speak to one another, the way we act towards one another is burdensome. <clears throat> Lost my place. Proverbs 18.21, the tongue has the power of life and death. Nick spoke about uh, the power of speech and, and wisdom in speaking a couple of weeks ago. And Solomon is arguing here that, that our words, our actions, they have the ability to either sow something burdensome, sow something evil, sow something harmful in someone's life, or they have the build, ability to build up and to grow and, and prosper them. <clears throat> and Solomon, I, I want to mention, Solomon here is not telling his son to give up all values. He's not telling him to stand up, not stand up for what he believes in. But it's important to note the, the main idea here is that your actions, your words carry great weight and responsibility to them. So the second point that Solomon is making here is seek to not do harm. <clears throat> Continuing down in verses 31 through 35. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. 
The wise will inherit honor, but the fools get disgrace. <clears throat> this list seems and, and somewhat feels a little out of place, you know, this, this list of warnings and, and contrasting kind of two different people here. You know, Solomon, he, he's warning his son that uh, if he's envious or, or of the violent or of the devious person, he's considered an abomination to the Lord. But the man of righteousness is near to God. The Lord curses the house of the wicked, Solomon tells his son, but he, he blesses the dwelling of the holy. God scorns the scornful. Those who make others feel inadequate or belittle them or, or make them feel unworthy, God will humble those people. But to the humble, God delights in them. He favors these people. The wise will be honored, but the fool, the one who leads others astray, will be disgraced. And although this kind of feels out of place from the first two sections that we looked at, what Solomon is doing here is kind of a, a unique teaching method of displaying, a, a, like I said, a contrast of two people to his son. He's teaching his son that his relationships with others his relationships with his neighbors, with his friends, with his family, his relationships on this horizontal plane are a direct reflection of his relationship on the vertical plane, on his reflection with, the, with his re relationship with God, right? He's teaching him that a man or woman of God cannot be violent or devious. They cannot be wicked or scorners or belittlers. The people of God are not fools, Led astray by the cheap promises of self-promotion and personal indulgence, especially at a cost of another. First John 4 says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who, do, who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Solomon, a, a man who loved God, a, a man of God, was trying to teach his son that when it comes to relationships, when it comes to how you treat others, talk is somewhat cheap, right? God has called his people to dwell peaceably with one another, to, to lay their lives down, to love their neighbor as they love themselves. He calls them to take care of the alien, to treat the orphan and the widow well, and, and if his son is walking around sowing evil, sowing harm, being quarrelsome, and it is a reflection of how his relationship with the Lord truly is. So the third piece of wisdom here that Solomon is teaching his son is that his relationship with people reflects his relationship with God. So now we've kind of come to the end of this proverb, and I think many of us agree, like, this is great advice. This sounds like a lovely place to live in, doesn't it? I don't think any of us would, you know at the forefront say, oh, man, I don't want to live in a world where people serve one another and, and I can go to my neighbor and ask for help and know that they're going to be there for me. I don't think anyone would live in a world where they're like, man, I don't really care if my friend or my neighbor or my spouse, I don't care if I can trust them. We want that. We want to know that we will be cared for, that people aren't out to harm us. But we don't have to look out far into this world to see that's not the world in which we live. Ecclesiastes 7 says this, There's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. <clears throat> to see that this isn't the world we live in, we don't even have to look outside of ourselves. How many of us have uh, purposely missed out on the opportunity to help a friend, whether it's moving furniture, giving a little of our time, 
giving them an extra $5 for whatever reason we can think of. Maybe it's, hey, we're going to be busy this weekend. I could really use tonight just for me. Or, hey, maybe I'm going to wait to respond to their text message just a little bit because I really don't want to go move a couch. Or, or, hey, I really want to do this and so I need to save money. All these different reasons we can make. How many of us are guilty of self-satisfaction and, and what we want over serving another? How many of us <clears throat> are guilty against gossiping about a friend or a neighbor or a coworker to advance our position in some way, whether it's just the status or in the, in the friend group or, or at work or, or for a whole host of reasons? How many times have we purposely plowed the ground of someone else's life, sowed something evil, and then come back to reap something for ourselves later at their expense? How many of us have entered into an argument not with the desire to find middle ground, not with the desire to educate, but with the desire to simply win at whatever cost. We enter into this argument with, with no holding back. We are happy to belittle them. We are happy to make them look dumb. We want people for the next hour, because that's how long Facebook arguments go for, we want people for the next hour to look on here and see, man, this guy just roasted this dude. He's so smart. He's so great. As I said, we don't even have to look outside of ourselves to see that we fall short of these wisdoms that Solomon give us. And when we look at the third piece of wisdom, we recognize that on our own, we are far from God. We are naturally bent towards selfishness. We are naturally bent towards self-reliance. We are, we are naturally bent to watch out for number one. But for believers here tonight, we realize that this isn't the way to live. And in recognizing our lack of ability to live in this way, to live by these standards, we more fully recognize our need for Christ's intervention in our life. An early church father was quoted as saying, We shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ except when we first know assuredly that we have no righteousness of our own. And it's only through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and, and his life and through the, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who comes upon every believer that we can live out these three pieces of wisdom. It, it's only through the Holy Spirit changing our heart, conforming us to the image of Christ, that we would even want to. And so now, on, on this side of the gospel, these pieces of wisdom are, are applicable. We can apply them to our lives. And so I want to look at three quick applications of how believers today should apply this wisdom to our lives. <clears throat> Number one, believers today should serve as a debtor. To the world, this is foolishness, right? Why would you ever want to be a debtor? Why would you ever want to be in servanthood? Why wouldn't you want to be the man on top? If you're asking those questions tonight, thank you for asking those questions. That's a great question, and I'm going to answer that for you. Number one, <clears throat> we as believers live in this way because we recognize that our time, our resources, the status that we have, the country that we were born in, whatever we have actually belongs to the Lord already. Aaron spoke on money last week, and he referred to the parable of the talents 
Uh, if you weren't here last week, don't know the parable of the talents. Essentially what happens is a master leaves three different amounts of money with three different servants. And two of the servants go and they take the gifts of the master, take what the master has given them, and put them to work. They, they grow them, they, they, they blossom, they use them for the master, and when the master comes back, they give them back. But then there's one servant who takes what the master gave him and, and buries it in the ground. He keeps it for himself. He's worried. He, he's, he's more about self-preservation. He's scared of the master. He, he wants to watch out for number one. And he's referred to as the wicked servant of the three. And so tonight, to the believer out there, I want to ask you, what are you doing with the resources that God has given you? I understand many of us are not kings in this room, but... What are you doing with what God gave you? Uh, a commentator said about this first little passage, a beautiful quote. He said that whether you're the most affluent person out there, able to buy people cars, buy people houses, able to give whatever you can, all the way down to the homeless man under the bridge who only has a dry spot and a half a can of beans to share, this passage is calling us to give of ourselves. If we're able to give, it is calling us to give it up. And so what are you giving today? Are you living with open hands? Are you living with hearts that are quick to serve, to give to your neighbor, your family, your co-worker? Because it was never really ours anyway. <clears throat> Secondly, we recognize that all this world has to offer, all that it promises us, the best things this world can create is frivolous compared to what the gospel offers us. It, it, it's cheap compared to what we have actually received. Matthew 16, 19 says this, Christ told his followers to not lay up their treasures on this earth where moths and rust corrupt it, or it can be stolen, but to lay up their treasures in heaven, to do the work of their God while on earth. And, and, and believer, I, I, I come to you and, and I implore you, what this world is offering you, what, whatever it can promise you falls woefully in comparison to the beauty and the magnitude and the worth of Christ. Whatever this world is, is promising you, what God is holding his hands out towards you is, is so much better. <clears throat> we no longer have to live in the bondage of, of striving for earthly things. People, people see our view of servanthood and, and what we're trying to do as being servants as, as a slave mentality. But truly, it's the opposite. Truly, to, to live in bondage of, of trying to strive for the best, trying to strive for the position, trying to st strive for the money or whatever, that is bondage. And we as believers are living free of that. We know that the work that we do transcends time and space and is bigger than the minuscule and short lifetimes that each of us are in, but can actually have a huge effect on eternity. We don't have to live in this bondage to junk, knowing that we have received the greatest of all treasures. We have Christ. We have been bought with his blood. We have been empowered and are now being indwelled with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and so whatever we are offered falls woefully compared to that. And that gives us the freedom to go and to serve with open hands. Second application point for, the, for people, believers in here tonight. Live as a peacekeeper. Paul said in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
In our sins, we don't know how to do this, right? In our sin, we, we only know how to live for ourselves. We know how to watch out for ourselves. We are content sowing seeds of malice and gossip and wickedness in other people's lives so that we can reap some form of pleasure later. But this isn't how Christ now calls us to live. Christ teaches that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And let's be honest, who loves you more than you do, right? Who's going to make sure that you're taken care of more than you? Who's going to make sure you're not hungry? Who's going to make sure that you're well clothed? Who's going to make sure that you have friends and, and you're cared for more than you? It's a simple phrase to love your neighbor as yourself, but it's hard to live out, right? It's hard for us to take the love that we have ourselves and put it on other people, but that is what we are called to do. Paul says in Romans 15:2 that we should seek to please our neighbor for their good, to build them up. <clears throat> and it is only through the strengthening of the Holy Spirit and living in close proximity with God that we can seek to do this. Because it is not easy, right? It is hard to let go of the wrong that has been done to you. It is wrong to love the person that blatantly disagrees with you. It is hard to, <clears throat> excuse me, it is hard to love the unlovable. But in doing so, in, in, in this effort, in this intentionality of living peaceably, in this intentionality of loving our neighbor, we see something amazing. <clears throat> in doing so, we can see relationships not fall apart. We can see relationships that are on the cusp of deteriorating be brought back to life. We can see relationships, we can see friendships, we can see your, your relationship with your parents come back to life. We can grow in our relationships with our spouses and with our kids and with our parents and we can grow in our understanding of one another. And ultimately this can open the door for the gospel in pursuit of good relationships, in pursuit of living peaceably, we open doors that are otherwise remain closed to the gospel. Now, I want to clarify that this is not a demand that we are silent about the truths of the gospel in an effort to not hurt feelings. But on the contrary, we should be bold about the truth of the gospel and what it teaches. We should boldly proclaim them, not with an intent to slander, though, we should proclaim them not to belittle someone else's intelligence. We should speak the gospel not to purposely drive someone into anger towards us, but in a sincere effort to bring them to Christ. In a sincere effort to show them the love of God possibly for the first time. All the while seeking others' well-being, seeking their good long before we seek that of our own. Third application point for believers tonight. Act as an ambassador. In ancient times, when a <clears throat> king would come and, and take over a land or a city or a town or whatever, he would uh, build a statue of himself somewhere prominent, somewhere people could see. And he would build this statue in his image so that when people came into this town, when they looked upon that statue, when they saw who the king was, they knew what he looked like. They knew who the king was. They knew the curves of his face. They knew the, the size of his arms. They, they could see the image of their king. And for believers today, number one, we are made in the image of God, right? We are on this earth depicting that God is the king of the universe. But number two, 
through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, through his sanctifying us, through him chipping away the, the wickedness of ourself, we grow to look more like Christ, the anointed king over this world. And so for the believer, I want to ask you, who does your life depict that Christ is? You bearing the name of Christ, you Christian, which originally meant little Christ, who does your life say that Christ is? Does it depict the God-man, the one who left his throne room, who took on flesh, who took on this junk, who, who bled, who got hungry, who gave up glory to come and live in this, this earth, and not even during a good time, like 2,000 years ago, right? Who came to live on this earth, and not just live here and rule with an iron fist, but came as a servant and died so that some might come to know him and, and dwell with him for all eternity and, and bring glory to the Father? Is that who your life is depicting Christ is? Or does your life depict Christ as being devious, deceitful, self-insured? Mm, hiccup there, so sorry. <laughs> um, Self-focused, wicked, scornful. And if so, why is that? Is there a need in your life to repent of jealousy and washing out for number one? Is there something in you that you need to repent of? Do you just enjoy making other people feel smaller than you? Do you have a, a small man complex or you feel like you need to be the smartest one in the room or the biggest one in the room or the wisest one that you have to win every argument? Are you too concerned with self-advancement? Can you tell today that you look more like Jesus than you did a year ago? Has the Spirit been chipping off little pieces of wickedness, little pieces of that old man, as, as Paul says, away from you? Who does your life depict that Christ is? And maybe th everything I've said here tonight, uh, this, this, this mentality of servanthood, this life of living peaceably, this life of watching out for someone else above you, when, when that's never been done in your life, is complete foolishness to you. Maybe it doesn't make any sense. And if that is the case, <clears throat> I would encourage you tonight, I, please come talk to me afterwards. Please come and, and we will discuss this and I would love nothing more than to have that conversation with you of, of why we're actually called to do that. But for the believers in this room, Christ said that you would know a tree by the fruit that it bore. What is the fruit that you're bearing? Christ told his disciples that people would know who they are by the way they loved one another. What does the way you are loving your neighbor, your, your fellow church member, your friend, your spouse, your children, what's that saying about who God is and whom you worship? <clears throat> so we see these three application points to, to serve as a debtor, to live as a peacekeeper, and to act as an ambassador and this week I met with Bryce and Aaron and, and was just discussing a few moments in the Gospels that kind of depict this, that, that paint this in, in a beautiful story, in a beautiful light. Um, obviously Jesus is the number one example of this and, and after dwelling on this, uh, one that came to my mind can be found in Mark 3, 1 through 6 and feel free to turn there if you'd like, I'm going to read it aloud. Again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, they being the Pharisees, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so, they, so that they might accuse him. 
And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. He said to them, it is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians to, against him, how to destroy him. I think that this passage kind of displays the two people that we've talked about all night. First, we have the Pharisees. The Pharisees who sees this man with a withered hand, and their first thought is, man, he, he doesn't need to be saved. He doesn't need to be fixed. We, 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 don't, need to fi we don't want Jesus fixing his hand. You know, it, it's the Sabbath. We don't do that. There's cultural orientations against this. We, we have a reputation to keep. This is the synagogue. This is the Sabbath. We, we don't need to have him healed. But not only is this, <clears throat> is this shown here, but we also see that the Pharisees use this man, use this man with a withered hand, this man in a vulnerable state as an entrapment to Jesus. In, in a vulnerable state, he, they use him as a way to ensnare Jesus, to, to maybe lure him in so that they can sow this evil, so that they can discredit him and his teaching, so that they can once again be the authority on religious things, right? So that they can be the voice that people come to. And in the eyes of Solomon, this, these people who are withholding good, who, who don't want to give it up, and who are using others for their own game, who are planning evil, who are plowing these seeds of harm, they're far from God. And then there's Christ, who enters into the scene, and, and seeing this man calls him over. And, and number one, seeing that he's in need, seeing that, that there's something he can do, seeing that it, it is good for him to do this, and he is capable, heals him. What a beautiful thing. And, and not only do we see Christ not withhold good from this man, but we see Christ respond to the Pharisees. And we see, see him that he's angry. I think it's important to notice that Christ is angry in this situation. He's, he's not flippant. He's not bashful. He's not silent. He calls them out. He, he questions them. He brings something against them. Now, he doesn't slander them. He doesn't go around and gossip. He doesn't, you know bring down lightning or she bears out of the woods like some prophets. Like, he addresses them, but, man, there's a gentleness there that Christ exudes. It's just beautiful, even in his anger towards the Pharisees, even in the anger of those who are trying to ensnare him and discredit him. And in the eyes of Solomon, this man who does not withhold good and who withholds evil, withholds his plotting against the Pharisees, we see that Christ closely is indwelling with the Lord. As we leave here tonight, as <clears throat> we reflect on this proverb and on this story of Christ, I, I want us to think on two things. Number one, let us not leave here unamazed or unaffected by the beauty of Jesus. Let us not leave here calloused to the beauty of who Christ is, the gentleness of, of the God-man coming down, Seeking out the broken, seeking out the hurting, seeking out you and I, let us not grow callous to the beauty of who our Savior is. And number two, let us leave here burdened to reflect 
this, this uh, example. Let us leave here intentionally looking for ways to serve. Let us leave here intentionally wanting to do good, not withhold it from our neighbor or our friend or whoever. Let us leave here intentionally holding back harm. Let us control our tongues. Let us control the wickedness of our hearts so that we may dwell in healthy relationships, so that we might have wisdom in these things and show the world the love our God first showed us. Dear Lord, we thank you for the gift that relationships are. We recognize that you did not have to make us relational by nature. You could have could have made us all dwell in isolation, but God, in your graciousness, you gave us the gift of each other. From parent to children, from sibling to sibling, from friend to friend, our lives are encompassed by relationships. I pray we leave here today looking to be intentional with how we live with those relationships. Let us be burdened to serve those who come in con- to whom we come in contact with as if it was due unto them. Let us be intentional about not tearing others down or plotting evil to others. And in doing so, let us be a clear example of who you are and how you intended us to live with one another. Amen.